Good morning. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week we began a five-week series in Luke chapter 15, and it's called The God Who Pursues. Luke 15 is comprised of three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Uh, And these are known as the parables of lostness. I think as we go, you'll find that it's really kind of one parable in three different forms uh, that talk about lostness. And last week, we looked at verses 1 and 2, which were read for us, where Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And we see the Pharisees looking upon what Jesus is doing and grumbling. They are upset that Jesus would defile himself by sitting with these unclean people and eating with them. So we made the case last week that Jesus exemplifies God's pursuit of all people. Those who are far from him, who we would call lost, and those who are near to him but are grumbling. The mode of pursuit may vary from person to person, but God, through the person of Jesus, never stops pursuing you. Never stops pursuing you. So now we get into the actual parables of Luke 15, and we start with the parable of the lost sheep. This parable is a beautiful one, one that is very uh, instructive for our understanding of the character of God. So as we go to this parable, we need to ask this question, why does God search for us? What motivates his pursuit of us? The most famous sermon preached in American history didn't happen in this pulpit. Uh, It happened in 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. The preacher was the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, and the sermon is considered a catalyst for the great Christian awakening in, in in this young country. The name of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, And the sermon is exactly like the title makes it sound. Um, It is articulate, horribly evocative, 18th century hellfire and brimstone preaching at its most potent. Just going to give you one example. Uh, I promise I won't do too much of this, but this one example, one excerpt from this sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some kind of loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Now, If I preached that sermon in my own words this morning, I would expect each and every one of you to get up, to walk out, and to never come back to this church. But that's not exactly what happened in Enfield, Connecticut on that day. The history books tell us that the congregation was really shook up after after hearing 45 minutes of Edwards basically assaulting their souls, right? But it also says that many of the people writhed on the floor and begged God for mercy. And that was kind of Edward's goal. He felt led to shock and scare people into repentance. 
And that sermon has left an impression on the religious temperature of America until this very day. It's important to note that Edwards did not always preach this way. He didn't always preach hellfire and brimstone. He was a, he was a truly gifted man who loved Jesus and had a heart for people. But, but it's a tragedy that, that the most important sermon in American history is one that causes spiritual PTSD for people. And it's shaped nearly three centuries of American understanding of the character of God. Yes, we read in Scripture that God is to be feared. Yes, We read about the anger of God in Scripture. But surely Edwards was fundamentally wrong, wasn't he? I mean, God is someone who takes sin very seriously, but to reduce God's character down to the word anger is something that I just can't stomach. And I think you probably agree with me this morning. Hopefully you're relieved to hear that. But I'm amazed in my conversations with many of you How many of you have a picture of God in your mind and in your heart that is much more like Edward's sinners in the hands of an angry God than the parable of the lost sheep? You've had an understanding of a God who is angry with you, who is counting your sins against you, who's ready to to dole out shame and guilt, ready to dangle you over the raging fire to force you to repent of your sins. But you tell me, does that match the character of the God presented to us in the parable of the lost sheep. Let me read it again for you. So Jesus told them this parable, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that he lost until it's found? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is hardly a vision of an insect dangling over a fire. This is a vision of the character of God that we can celebrate this morning. It's probably not going to make you writhe on the floor, but it might change your life if you really let it sink in this morning. Last week, I told you that all four elements of the gospel of Jesus, as Jesus understood it and preached it, are here in Luke chapter 15. And in this parable, we see one very clearly, and it's compassion. Compassion. A hallmark of Jesus' gospel is compassion. God's heart towards you, towards me, towards all of us, at our worst, our most lost, our most sinful, remains one of unwavering love and compassion. So, A few questions that we need to ask uh, for us to understand this text today. The first is this. Why did Jesus use the analogy of sheep and shepherds? Why this analogy? Next week, we're going to hear a sermon that's almost exactly the same as this parable, uh, the parable of the lost coin. The same basic message, but a different vessel. Um, But it's significant that Jesus uses the sheep and the shepherd for this particular parable. Shepherds were um, a despised trade in the first century. They were considered low class. It was a tough job. It was a smelly job. It was a dirty job. And remember that Jesus is speaking to Pharisees in this parable, all three of these parables actually, a group of people who were immensely concerned about cleanness, right? So this would have been a shocking image for the Pharisees, especially the way that Jesus asked the question to begin, which one of you... Having 100 sheep and losing them doesn't go after it. This is a rhetorical question, but you can imagine how the Pharisees might answer, well, none of us would do that. 
because we would never work with unclean animals. We would never defile ourselves in such a way. Genius rhetorical work by Jesus here. He's really amazing. Um, The image of the sheep and the shepherd would have also had deep resonance for these Pharisees who were so learned in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. We might think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or Ezekiel 34, where, God, where it says that God himself will seek out and search the lost sheep. We might think of David, the shepherd king, who, who, who wards off threats from lions to keep the sheep safe. It's tough to say with certainty that Jesus is drawing a, a direct connection to any one of these Old Testament passages, but certainly he is framing this in the Old Testament understanding of shepherds and the, and the, and the shepherd tradition. This is important because by alluding to this tradition, Jesus is indicating that this is not a new teaching about God's character, but rather a continuation of what the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, say about God and his character. Second question that we might have, why the number 100? I don't know if you've come across this or not, but whenever you get a number in Scripture, people will try and find like a mystical meaning in that number. Um, There's not really a need for that here even though 100 is a, is a number that's a complete number. It's a nice, well-rounded number. But the number 100 here is simply to indicate that this shepherd was fairly well off. Um, this, is a, this is a sizable flock, but it's not such a big flock that the shepherd would have to divide the flock and put some of that flock under somebody else's care. In other words, the shepherd in this parable is not a hired hand. The shepherd is the owner of the flock. And that's important, because if we understand God and Jesus as the character of the good shepherd, then we are his flock. Another question, why and how does a sheep get lost? Um, A regular part of the shepherding life was taking the sheep far afield to graze or to simply transport them from one area of property to the the other. The, The image that you have to have here is of the Judean wilderness, It's rocky terrain, it's wooded in areas, there's lots of cliffs and crags and and caves. It was really easy for a sheep to go astray in this kind of terrain and to find themselves lost. Uh, According to Kenneth Bailey, a really interesting scholar who's embedded himself into uh, Bedouin shepherding communities for much of his career, when a sheep in this kind of area realizes that they're lost, that they've been separated from the flock, they, they don't try to retrace their steps. They're not smart enough to do that. They don't try and, and get back to the flock. They don't cry out for help. They just lay down and they resign themselves to death. That's what they do when they're lost. And this is probably why Luke notes that the shepherd doesn't lead the sheep back to the flock, right? What does the shepherd do? The shepherd takes that lamb that's already laid down and puts it on his shoulders and brings it back to safety to the flock. Um, this is really, really hard work for the shepherd. We might think that just finding the sheep was, was, was really the climax of this story, but actually it was really, really hard work to bring them back. A full-grown male sheep could weigh north of 200 pounds, uh, and that's when they're dry. If they're wet and full of water, uh, they're slippery and they're smelly and they're really, really heavy. And remember that this terrain is treacherous. And this is partly why one of the chief images of the earliest churches in the first century were of Jesus with a sheep on his shoulders. It was a sign, uh, an image of love and care and compassion of God. 
Okay, next question, the one that a bunch of you have been asking already in your minds. Would a shepherd really abandon 99 other sheep? I mean, isn't this kind of a knock on the character of God? Doesn't this undo all the compassion for the one if the 99 are left alone? There's a a ton that's written on this question, and there are a lot of answers floating around. But here's what I want to say. The fact that this would be such a troublesome question for us is probably more an indication of where we are rather than where God is, right? This basically, when, we, when we're really worried about the 99, we're planting ourselves firmly with the Pharisees here. We can easily read parables way too literally and miss the point. The point of this parable is really clear. Jesus' compassionate pursuit of lost sheep. That's the point of this parable. It's not really concerned with the 99, but that doesn't mean that God isn't concerned with all the sheep of his flock. Care for one sheep does not preclude care for all the other sheep. Every shepherd in the first century and in every century since has multiple enclosures on their property. So if they need to go somewhere, they can bring the whole flock of sheep into that enclosure, go find the one that's lost, and bring them back. In fact, as my teacher and friend Klein Snodgrass forcefully puts it, valid interpretation of this parable should not focus on the 99 sheep at all. One more question. How can this be about repentance when a sheep can't repent and we see no repentance at all in the sheep in the story? Jesus' commentary on the, at the end of the parable is kind of troublesome here. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So a lost sheep that finds themselves in the wilderness and lays down to die isn't repenting. So how do we understand this? Well, we need to understand that Jesus' use of this image of the sheep is meant to communicate that God's saving pursuit and compassion and love is his initiative, and it's solely his initiative. He moves towards us even when we're lost and left dead. We're not smart enough to find our way back on our own. We need a savior. But repentance does require human action. Remember, the parable is not meant to instruct us on the character of the sheep. It's about the character of God. So Jesus here is defending his compassionate pursuit of these tax collectors and sinners, and that's what the parable is really talking about. Many have claimed that Jesus' little postscript here about those who don't need repentance um, is, is kind of an interesting way of speaking because there are no 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Such a person doesn't exist. And so maybe Jesus here is uh, exhibiting some humor, some sarcasm, some irony. But I think it's actually a little more potent than that. And I think when we think about it in our understanding, we need to think about it as all 100 sheep are sinners. The one represents a sinner who repents, who turns from sin and self and right living to God as we defined it last week. One who through God's compassion and initiative is reunited with the flock from which they have been cut off. One who reorients their lives towards Jesus. The 99 sheep that stay in that enclosure, they're sinners as well, but they're in good standing with Jesus. They're not lost in that way. All 100 are valued, but the party that's thrown is for the one, not the 99. And we're going to talk about celebration in a couple weeks, so hang on for that. So what's revealed about the character of God in this parable of the lost sheep when we put it all together? 
My friend Klein, here's how he answers that. What's revealed about the character of God is the value he places on even the least deserving and the care he extends to such people. God is not passive waiting for people to approach him after they get their lives in order. He is the seeking God who takes the initiative to bring people back regardless of how lost they are. God's seeking does not come with conditions attached. That's compassion. That's love. That's kindness. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, Don't you realize that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? It's compassion that makes us eager to turn from where we are headed, a place of destruction, and reorient our lives towards Jesus. Not anger. Not anger leading us to repentance. Kindness. Compassion. Author and pastor Brian Zond, if I can go back to this image, he makes an observation about this image and others like it. When people illustrate uh, Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God or, or any of those kind of uh, tracts that you might have seen over the year, any kind of hellfire and brimstone reality of an angry, wrathful God, he sees a common denominator. They never show God's face. They never show God's face. And he says something so simple and so powerful about that when he says, but God does have a face and he looks like Jesus. When we look at Jesus in Scripture, this is why we study the Gospels, folks. When we look at Jesus in Scripture, we are seeing God's face. God is not a sadistic monster who dangles hapless sinners over a fiery pit. He couldn't be that because that doesn't look like Jesus. And Jesus is the image of God. We can create all sorts of of images of God in our minds and in our hearts, but at the end of the day, if that image doesn't look like Jesus as presented to us in God's word, then we must have it wrong. As Zahn continues, people have never seen God until they see Jesus. Every other portrait of God from whatever source, is subordinate to the revelation of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. And this is why the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and, and, and the prodigal son in Luke 15 are of such value to us. They give us a clear picture of Jesus, his values, his mission, his priorities, his gospel. And in turn, he gives us a, uh, these give us a clear picture of God revealed in Jesus. And this clarity allows us, I hope, to drop the image of God, um, just his hands, using, using his hands to dangle us over the fire, and instead to embrace the image of Jesus holding the lost sheep over his shoulder with his hands. As Zahn so beautifully called his book, we are sinners in the hands of a loving God. Now this truth is beautiful, but it's also challenging. Part of the reason that Jesus used parables was to communicate the truth of God vividly to us, but also to leave anyone who hears these parables with a challenge. And what's the challenge here? Well, if God is a compassionate and caring God who pursues lost people, even lost people like you and me, are we willing to adopt that character as well? 
Can we absorb the truth that we are sinners in the hands of a loving God in such a way that we would leave the 99 and go far afield to find that lost one and bring them back? That we would go to great lengths to find them? That we would bear the cost of carrying them on our own backs to safety? Those in our lives who are far from God, the lost, the prodigal, the detached, the outcast, would they look at you and me and say, that person pursued me relentlessly with great compassion and it was them showing me the kindness of God, not the anger of God, but the kindness of God that led me to repentance. If that's not true of us, then we have work to do. I know that I do. Because it's not enough to know that God pursues me through the person of Jesus Christ. I must also live the reality that God is pursuing me and you and you and you and everybody out there. I thank Jesus for his great compassion towards me. And I ask him that all of us might respond with the same Christ-like compassion towards others. And by doing so, making God's loving face visible to a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we lay down our views of you that don't match with the character of Jesus. We lay down our perception that your motivation towards us is anger. And we accept the reality that your motivation towards us is love and compassion. That you are the good shepherd who goes far afield to bring us home. And Lord, we're mindful of that great love for us and may it absorb in such a way that we too are defined by a compassion that comes from you. A care for the lost, for those who are far from God, a desire to see them back. Lord, for any here today who feel lost, who feel far from God, I ask that you would speak to them clearly right now and let them know that you are pursuing them. You are pursuing their hearts. You're pursuing their marriages, their children. You are pursuing them. And as we recognize your pursuit of us, we're mindful too that even as you are our good shepherd, you sent your son Jesus Christ to be a sacrificial lamb for us. We're reminded of those words in Isaiah 53 that all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned our own way. But the Lord has laid upon that man of sorrows, his own son, the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Jesus, that you identify with our lostness through the cross, through your very death. 
so that we might enter the fold of the people of God, the kingdom of God. And may our life in the kingdom be defined by receiving your compassion and sending it on to others. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.